Welcome everyone to this latest Isolation Insight event from the UK in a changing Europe and this one is on the future of the EU. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome uh, four people I really respect and really like to come and discuss this with me. Uh, going around my screen, Professor Lucas Sakalis uh, runs the think tank Eliamep in uh, Greece and has the rare distinction of teaching me my first ever course on the European Union way back when. Helen Thompson, Cambridge University, you might well know her as half of the Talking Politics podcast with David Runciman. Simon Hicks, professor at the LSE. Am I allowed to say you're moving? Sure. About to become professor at the European University Institute in Florence. And Lisa O'Carroll from The Guardian. The way we're going to structure this is we're going to have a brief sort of conversation and then we'll open it up to questions. Use the Slido for the questions. And if you want to be very, very helpful please vote for the questions you'd like me to put for the panelists uh, because then those come to the top of my list. And please bear in mind that the title of this event is the future of the European Union. So I reserve the right not to go to loads of questions about Brexit if, and if there are questions on the EU in the thing. So let me start by linking those two subjects, I suppose, and say, what has Brexit taught you about the European Union? Simon, do you want to kick us off? Um, well, I think a couple of things. Firstly, I think Brexit, the, the way the EU responded to Brexit has surprised quite a few people. And it's shown that the EU can actually pull together uh, in a very united way. It didn't surprise me as much, though, in that I already had seen how the EU behaves negotiating external relation deals by delegating huge powers to the Commission and acting in a unified way behind them. Um, but I do think that actually in the medium term, Brexit is potentially much more of a challenge to the EU and the European integration project than perhaps some people are estimating. Right now, of course, Brexit seems like a mistake. I think the continent likes to portray it as a mistake. There's growing public support in all the polls for European integration. Partly people are perceiving that in response to the troubling situation in the UK with Brexit. But in the medium term, once we're out of the, the teething problems, if you like, there will be a UK model of exit. You know, there'll be a Norwegian model and a Swiss model. There'll be a UK model. And at some point, the UK model will look quite attractive. The British economy will start growing again. The UK will be perceived to be doing some things better than the EU has. And I'm sure we're going to come on to, to one of those when we get to talk about vaccines. Um, and so, you know, I think that as an alternative model could potentially be politically very difficult for the EU. I can imagine forces in different countries across Europe, in Scandinavia and Eastern Europe saying, can we bypass all the difficult stages and just take off the shelf the British model and get there? And I think that potentially is a real worry for the EU. Thank you. Helen, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I think that what's striking, uh, if you look at the initial EU reaction is, is that on the one side, you can talk about it as something that was unifying and it seemed to lead to, you know, uh, increased support for EU institutions, the collective purpose of the um, EU in most um, EU um, states. But I think if you look at the actual sort of issues at stake and the fault lines, both in the EU and in relation to Britain's membership of it or the United Kingdom's membership of it, I should um, say, is, is that the reaction was primarily defensive. Because it was actually an opportunity to say, actually, the biggest impediment to turning the European Union and the Eurozone into essentially the same thing. So solving the ins out problem that was is, I think, very destabilizing for the European Union. And we can see how destabilizing it's been over the EU recovery fund issues and effectively the way that Poland and Hungary get a de facto veto. Is, is the UK's exit was an opportunity to face that question head on. And you can see certain people, including, I think, um, both um, Juncker and um, Macron, when he came, when he won the French, when he became French president, trying to get to that position of like saying, look, people have got to decide, other states have got to decide if they're outside the euro, does that mean that they're not actually committed to the European um, project? But instead of seeing Brexit in those terms, it was seen as a potential long-term threat to the EU's credibility. Uh, and so I think in one sense, it, it, it kind of, you've got a pyrrhic victory out of it, but I agree with Simon 
that actually unable to take the opportunity to resolve what could have been resolved in principle at least, it's now in a quite difficult position. Thank you. Uh, Lucas. Okay, now my first reaction would be that surely the European Union is much weaker as a result of Brexit because any country leaving the European Union, any country leaving the European project is a big loss. And the UK is much more than any European country. So that's the first side of the story. The second side of the story is that it looks so far that Brexit makes the European Union more governable because it takes out of the picture the country that had developed in the process as a kind of conscientious objector to most things related to European integration. So let me give you an example. Imagine, I mean, the negotiation leading to the pandemic package of 750 billion euros, which was a real game changer, a decision taken in the middle of 2020. It was difficult, it took a long time and so on and so forth. But can you imagine that negotiation with the UK inside? I think it's very possible that the EU 28 would have never agreed. So that is an example. I'm not suggesting that there is consensus on most things in the European Union. It would be absurd to think about such a thing. But the presence of the UK, a big country that was objecting to many things, made a big difference. The Dutch on their own or the Dutch together with the Austrians or the Swedes can at best try to scale down the ambition of others, but they cannot stop it. The UK could. Interesting. Lisa? Um, Anand, I'm sorry, I was multitasking because there's something going on at the Cabinet Office, as you know. Don't worry, don't worry. Just ask me the question again. It's really fascinating. I thought what Lucas said was really interesting. Well, I mean, the question, the question was, uh, what, what has Brexit taught us about the European Union? Gosh, um, well, I suppose, um, you know, one of the, the, the main things is how unified it can be when it wants to be um, and when they have a common, common enemy, um, which was the those countries that wanted to, to leave, um, you know, um, emboldened by the UK's referendum decision. Um, but I guess in the last 28 days, we've also seen the, the absolute, absolute opposite of that. And as, a, as an Irish person having covered the financial crash, I can see how quickly the EU can, you know, do do the wrong thing, um, and you know the unity that it has showed in um, the procurement of the vaccine. I think um, we will have some we'll have some time to go to see what the benefit of that has been. Um, if you were in Ireland, for example, in Dublin, and you were um, hoping for the vaccine, and I'm over fifty, and I will be getting it here. I would be looking at um, uh, my brethren up in the north of Ireland, where they have they're a month ahead on um, registering the over 65s. And I think the the actual real life issues around COVID are, um, you know, really um, quite important to the future of the EU. And I think we're at a kind of a dangerous existential moment for the EU. And the last few days have shown also how quickly the EU misunderstood Northern Ireland with the invocation of um, Article 16, I think that will have lasting damage. Okay, I mean, let's stick to the vaccine for a moment then, because it's, it's an obvious issue. And I, I could almost ask you the same question in a sense. What does experience <coughs> to date with the vaccine and perhaps the prospects over the next few months tell us about the European Union? I mean, was there a plausible alternative to the European Commission managing procurement overall? I mean, potentially, I mean, there was a plausible alternative, but I think France and Germany was, was interesting from their point of view that they supported the commission quite early on in this collective strategy. And I think the reason they did it is they did fear the sort of dog eat dog rise of nationalism. Perhaps you could say that the, the commissions demonstrating that it was capable to hold everyone together over Brexit allowed them actually to push forward a common purchasing strategy for the EU as a whole. That in absence of the Brexit experience, they might not have been able to do that. But I think they did, they had established credibility and legitimacy with how they dealt with Brexit. And I think that definitely helped them. Um, I'm worried more about, about what this says about the credibility of the commission as a whole and how that will sort of spill over into several other policy areas. 
and the credibility of the commission president as a person. And, and you know, you, it's, it's given what's happened with the, I mean, Lisa talked about uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, given what, if you add the Northern Ireland Protocol error to where we are with the vaccines and you put the, the two together, I think, I think this is potentially a very dangerous moment for the commission president herself. And, um, and I think it does raise serious questions. In a sense, the member states are quite happy to have a commission president historically that's a sort of second level politician because they feel that that actually the, the real leaders, the real leaders of Europe are the heads of government in the European Council and they can boss around the commission president. And they've never got to a point where they're able to see the commission president in a sense as an equal that they can trust to just get on with it. And I think that tension is at the heart of EU governance. It doesn't really cause problems in sort of everyday working of the EU, but it always causes problems whenever the EU is in real crisis mode. And then the Commission does clearly not have the authority, does not have the legitimacy, does not have the mandate really to govern in the way that the EU needs it to govern. And I think that raises serious problems for the design of the EU. Anyone else want to come in on this? I mean, could I, I, just, could I just add, to, um, just to extend that, I think the question voters will be asking is why did their governments outsource something like health? Health isn't part of an, an economic union. Um, it's a, a, of national competency. And I think that, you know, unless the EU can catch up on the UK's vaccination programme and go beyond that and be the, the world leader in sharing the vaccine with poorer countries in Africa, the rest of the world, I think... I think this, like I said, I think this is this is an existential moment for the EU, and I agree. Ursula von der Leyen's um, handling of this has has been very instructive. And, and I was reading this morning our own Dan Boffy um, and others writing a piece about the decision making and the, the explanation, and you know that, that how she has um, surrounded herself with uh, German, um, a, a small cabal of uh, of German officials. Um, that she hasn't been public like Barnier was um, with his press conferences. And even I think the, 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 um, the um, address to the European Parliament, I don't, I don't think that was public either. So, you know, let's, let's I mean, I suppose we could um, imagine a scenario where Ursula von der Leyen resigns, maybe not over this, but in due course. And I suppose what you're left then is the, the, the quintessential question is, does the European Commission survive this? With somebody else at the top. That, that was a curious thing for me, doing a, a private Q&A with the leakiest institution in the world. What could you possibly gain? But uh, Lucas, is this existential, do you think? Uh, it seems to me that if you look at what happened with the vaccines so far, it's a mixed message, like most messages we get from Brussels. <laughs> the good side of the message is that we avoided a very unpleasant, undignified scramble to get vaccines. Imagine if we had not agreed on a coordinated effort and you had 27 different national governments out trying to outcompete each other to get hold of vaccines. We have avoided that. What is the bad side of the message? The bad side of the message is that the European Commission has been slow and has not done a very good job, okay? And they ended up also with this extraordinary cock up with Northern Ireland. So, uh, it's neither enthusiastic nor damning, okay? Now Britain is doing better than EU27 as far as vaccines are concerned. Let us not draw long-term conclusions from that. Go on, Helen. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to, a, it's, a, it's a kind of structural question about the nature of political authority in the, in the European Union. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the crisis, there was an obvious scramble for, well, scramble for resources over PPE equipment and, you know, export bans effectively and shutting down borders and all the side of the EU that would suggest that in the moment of crisis that the nation state research, asserts itself. And obviously that's very problematic for the long-term political credibility um, of the um, EU. And, it, uh, and so, the reaction then becomes was, well, we need to have a common um, approach and really the only agent of political agency through which that can be um, pursued is through the um, commission. But the idea that you could, in the middle of a pandemic, invent health policy for the or health procurement policy for 
the European Union is just absurd when she when, when stop and think about it. You can't be inventing political authority to deal with the crisis, that the emergency, so to speak. You need the political authority there before the emergency happens. And what this showed was that it that it wasn't there. And when you try to construct it through the crisis, it just exposes um, that structural problem. Okay, I'm aware that a lot of people... I mean, you know, I, I think in, we can talk about many other different political systems historically, and, you know, the development, for example, of the US or the development of the, you know, the Scottish government in the UK. Often, you know, crises are windows of opportunity for executives to sort of demonstrate their authority. And, and if it works, then they get gradually get that authority built on top of it afterwards. Um, if it fails, then, uh, then, you know, that's the real risk. The problem, I think, for the Commission was not only, I agree with Lucas, not only did they actually resolve the problem of the sort of dog-eat-dog national competition over vaccines, they negotiated unbelievable prices. I mean, the prices they negotiated from the vaccine suppliers was astonishing compared to the prices that, say, Israel or the UK are paying, or even the US government is paying for their own, for their own vaccines. And so, you know, initially that looked like the EU had won the, the battle early on. But, but I think what they didn't think is if you're negotiating these very knockdown prices, the manufacturers are going to want to supply them first to the people paying the higher prices. And nobody had thought about that. Nobody had really considered what does this actually mean for the timing of these things when others, these manufacturers are not publicly owned institutions, they're private companies, they're going to be supplying them first to the guys who are paying the highest. And it was astonishing to me that nobody really in the EU architectural bureaucracy had really thought about that, had thought about those consequences. Now they're seeing the results of that. And is that a capacity issue? Is that an expertise issue? Is it a lack of political nous and political experience that more experienced, more high-powered political leaders would have? I'm not sure yet. Is it partly just a perspective issue as well? I mean, one of the interesting things about this for me is it seemed that initially at least, the European Commission thought it had a comparative advantage over the others because of its heft, it could negotiate a better price. And they were quite slow to recognize that in this particular instance, price isn't the issue, it's speed. Uh, it's not about money. It's not about getting a good deal. It is get this thing and inject it at any cost and do it very, very fast. And it did strike me that there was an economic calculation taken here, which when it should have been a political calculation, if you like. Is that, is that fair? Uh, Anand, I think it's not a question of a political or economic calculation. It is an economic calculation straightforward. They underestimated the cost of the prolonged lockdown. So they ended up with better prices, but they don't get the bloody things. So, yeah. you know, it's, it doesn't work economically. It's not the question of economics versus politics. We have better prices than the UK. We have better prices than the UK. We don't have the vaccines. Is that where the intersection of politics and health and uh, technocrats, you know, have have failed? Um, I wonder. It's interesting. And just probably also, if you are a commission bureaucrat, you carry I mean, the burden of responsibility of actually having good prices is felt more strongly than if you are representing a national government. So probably they were oversensitive to the question of prices. Imagine the furor that you'd have had had the commission been accused of paying double the price than the UK or the US for the vaccines. So you, it's not easy to win yeah. either way. But I think the other question is, is though, is, is like you basically have a complete separation with the commission doing it between the procurement and then the delivery once you've actually got the vaccines, because nobody was going to be suggesting that the commission was going to be sorting out how to distribute the vaccines in the 20th. That has to go back then to the, the, the member states. And this goes back to the fact that you haven't actually got a policy structure in health that would connect what the commission does to what goes on in what, what not just goes on in member states, but what in decentralized member states has got to go on, you know, below the national level as well. Just, I mean, moving on to the economy more generally, we have this recovery fund. And I was just wondering how, how confident you are that this marks a real step towards addressing some of those distributional issues that have haunted the EU, particularly I'd argue since the start of the launch of the Euro. But is this, is this, a, a really meaningful step towards real economic burden sharing inside the European Union, do you think? Gus? 
Shall I respond? Yeah. Okay. Uh, First mover advantage. Okay. <laughs> now, there is no doubt that an agreement to borrow 750 billion euros in markets to finance a big fiscal stimulus package with a strong redistributive bias in favor of weaker and more vulnerable countries, and also intended to help the transformation towards a digital and green economy is a game changer. It's probably, it's arguably the most important decision taken perhaps since the creation of the euro. Because it changes the fundamentals. The EU is borrowing money. It's spending money, large amounts of money. And it is redistributing this money. And it is also trying to transform the economy. Okay, is that enough? If the lockdowns are prolonged, 4% of GDP will not be enough to deal with the problem. Okay, that's the first point. Second is unemployment is going to go up. Bad loans are going to go up, not only in the European Union, in the UK and elsewhere. Are we all collectively able already to deal with the long-term, medium and long-term consequences of the pandemic? I'm not sure. So. I'm happy to go next if people want. Yeah. Um, you don't all have to be this polite. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, I agree with, with Lukash that, that if you think of this in a sort of, you know, the steps of the process of European integration, you know, you create the single market, you create a single currency. This looks very much in a story you tell that's the, the first step of genuine fiscal union. Right? This, is the, this is real genuine borrowing power, uh, general fiscal borrowing power of the EU. That said, the real fiscal guns, cannons, if you like, are still residing at the national level, overwhelmingly at the national level. This is just a top up in a way. And this is the inherent problem with the EU. In a sense, it's a sort of upside down polity, if you like. The single market's created on a continental scale. All the instruments for governing the single market are in Brussels. But all the instruments for managing money, taxing and spending, are still are overwhelmingly at the national level. And just even with this recovery fund, and it is substantial at 4% GDP, there's still going to be at the national level. And, and so there's always going to be that battle about how, to, how are we going to coordinate what we do? The EU is not a federal system when it comes to economic and monetary union or taxing and spending policy. It is a federal system when it comes to regulating the market. But all the key issues now about coming out are not, are not about regulating the market. And Brussels doesn't have the tools, really, I think, to deliver on what is this ambitious agenda that they have. It's going to be very, they're going to be very reliant on this being a collective effort of, of the national governments. And I don't yet see that being on the cards in the next few years. Helen, you confident? No, I mean, I think that one thing is true is, is that in fiscal terms, in the borrowing side, it's a big deal for the reasons that Lucas says. I mean, the fact that it's not backed by anything that could be called EU taxation means, I think, that the idea that it's like anything like a Hamiltonian moment, as some people have wanted to suggest, just, just doesn't work at all. But I think that what we've seen thus far is, though, that it really embeds in this tension, deep tension now between the Eurozone ins and the Eurozone outs, because what it did was essentially deal with what's primarily a Eurozone issue, which is the need for greater fiscal capacity within the Eurozone and embed it in the entire European Union, rather than creating any specific Eurozone institutions like Macron um, wanted to do. And that has effectively gave um, Poland and Hungary uh, a veto over how this proceeds. Now, that is compounded by the fact that then there are people who want to use something that was conceived and urgently necessary in relation to the Eurozone to deal with the Hungary and Poland issue as a rule of, rule of law um, issue. So you've just kind of like now tangled up a whole set of, of, of tensions that the, the EU faces into a, into a more singular problem. And I think that is, that is a quite problematic outcome of what has happened. Lisa, you don't have to come in if you don't want to, but you're very welcome to no, I, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating. I'm learning a lot. I mean, just a quick follow-on on this, I suppose, would be, 
sort of with a political science hat on is will will voters i mean particularly in the south feel the benefits and recognize where these benefits will this is this politically a game changer is this will it have political impacts on those who are suspicious of european integration or are tempted by populism well i mean i'm long in long in the tooth i'm afraid and end on this one i mean every time the eu does a major step forward people say this is the game changer European elections will be different, national elections will be different because the EU has done X, Y, and Z, single market, single currency, you know, you name it, uh, Spitzenkandidat. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm deeply skeptical about that. The real problem is the attention of the voters, the attention of the media is and will remain for a considerable time, national politics, national politicians. Brussels is something completely second order, second tier, and, and it's a problem. I think it really is a structural problem in a sense that the politics in the way the EU works is national. The policy in well, the way the EU works is in Brussels. And it's really hard to govern a system effectively and accountably with that conflict. And I, I, don't, I don't see this in a sense solving that, I'm afraid. And I, I, I worry about what the long-term consequences are of that, of there being a fiscal capacity in Brussels without a politics to match it and hold that to account. But I'd be very interested to hear what Helen and Lucas and uh, think about this. And also how it's perceived in Ireland. I remember Lucas writing ages ago in one of his books about the EU being gravity defying in the sense that there was this economic entity there without the, the political infrastructure. And this very much has come to mind both via I think uh, Simon's uh, remarks and just watching the EU recently is, is the political infrastructure there yet? Does there need to be more of it? And in which case, what would it and should it look like? Since you refer to me, let me try to give an answer. <laughs> uh, there is no doubt that the nation state remains at the center of the whole thing. So Simon is absolutely right. The nation state is the center. Politics is national, European politics is secondary at best. Now, having said that, there is clearly a gap between economics and politics. Economic integration is far ahead of political integration. That has implications, okay? And I would hazard the second part of the sentence that there is also a huge gap between perception and reality. The European reality is much more important than most of our citizens perceive it to be. How do you bridge that gap? It takes a very long time. It's an extremely slow process and I have no idea how this is going to end. So you have, I mean, you are trying to balance or you're trying to run a very strange animal. Nobody has ever had such a political animal before, okay? So, you know, that's what also makes European integration fascinating, because there are no precedents. Mm. I think we're going to see, maybe by the time we finish talking, maybe uh, Mario Draghi will be Prime Minister of Italy. And um, that if you think about where the origins of the Recovery Fund were, it was really about, in the first instance, rescuing Italy from what seemed Italy's particularly deep predicament. Um, because of the fact that it would get left behind, essentially, in a fiscal stimulus competition. What's well, competition? But it wouldn't be able to do the same kind of fiscal stimulus that others would do in response to the um, the pandemic. And then, if you look at the way in which Italian politics has played out since then, including the fact that um, Renzi brought the coalition down, that that government down over the recovery fund issue. Uh, and who controlled the recovery fund issue, the, the upshot of that seems to be likely that the former head of the president of the European Central Bank is going to be the Italian prime minister. Uh, and we know what happened uh, after Monti became Italian prime minister, the next elections are five star votes to their, um, their uh, prominence. So it doesn't seem to me that it's just about the way in which um, voters react to uh, what goes on in in, in Brussels, in the European Union level itself, the European Union is coming, particularly in Italy, right into the middle of Italian um, politics. And we're gonna we've got to expect that there's gonna be another political reaction in Italy um, to that. And after all, in one sense, the point of 
not having elections in Italy, having this new government, as that is what is happens, is just precisely for there not to be elections because of the fear um, that Salvini and the Brothers of Italy will be the, the winners of the election. But if I may, I mm -hmm. mean, the crux of the matter in Italy is that Italian economy has been stagnating for the mm -hmm. last 20 years. So then you're trying to find culprits. And one of the possible culprits is Europe. But the fundamental problem is that the country is not doing well. And not doing well has much more to do with domestic reasons, I believe, than with European and international reasons. Countries that are doing well can deal with this conundrum between politics and economics more easily. Italy is a problem because it's a country that is not doing well. But Lucas, what's your perception from Greece when you think about, you know, in a sense, it's a replication of, of a discussion we had a decade ago with Greece. No. Um, you know, this was Brussels EU politics interfering directly into domestic Greek politics. Which was Brussels true. enforcing an astonishing austerity and a reduction in GDP in Greece in return for really dramatic structural reform. And, and everyone expected there to be, in a sense, an explosion. And there was in Greece, but it's sort of settled down. I mean, is there still a legacy of, a, of, a, of, of an anti-European sentiment as a result of that experience? Or is it very particular Greek uh, issue? My telegraphic answer to that question would be, first of all, that the Greeks were largely, had largely themselves to blame for all the situation they found themselves in in 2009-10. Then the European partners came with a punishing mood and imposed on them impossible uh, packages, okay, mm -hmm. and impossible conditions for the money they lent them. Now, there was an explosion and there was a rise in anti-European feelings in all Eurobarometers and every other opinion poll you can look, look at. But, and people talked about Grexit. We had Brexit, but we didn't have Grexit. And what's the difference? The difference is that for Greeks, membership of the European Union is a, an existential issue. For a small country on the periphery of Europe and in the neighborhood where Greece finds itself in, being a member of a broader, stronger alliance of European countries is of existential importance. The UK thinks rightly or wrongly, it has other options as well. So when it came to the crunch, the Greeks hated what was happening with the European Union, but didn't want to leave. So, this is where yeah. I think there are other countries that potentially have other options. Sweden potentially has sure. other options sure. in the medium term. So, anyway, but Lisa, sorry. I was just going to pick up on what um, uh, you had said, Simon, earlier about um, the, you know, the fact that the European Commission and the EU is of uh, um, a second order in politics. Um, that national politics um, has primacy in each member state, etc. But I do think, I come back to this point, that the vaccine and, and COVID is entirely different. I lived through the, um, uh, I lived in Dublin during the crash. I covered the crash. Um, the Greek one followed it. Um, jobs were lost. There was a, an incredible property crash that um, there hasn't been a recovery from 12 years later. Um, but I think this is different. It is visceral. People know people who have died of COVID. They will seek to blame people. And if the EU are deemed to have mucked up, you know, it, I think the EU will become, a, a, will, will, will go into that basket of, um, you know, primary politics. Um, and that's why I think there will be an existential, this is an ex existential moment. And it's not about now, it's about the next six months, the next, you know, we're looking at COVID. Um, or you know, not returning to normal life till 2021. If you had a parent who has died in a hospital or picked up COVID in a care home or a hospital, you, you, that is going to be something you're going to be thinking about as a, as a person and as a family for way beyond um, uh, you know, the next few months. Um, so that's the point I wanted to make. As a reporter, those are the kind of things that we look for is like how, how things impact real life. Um, yes, the different order of impact with COVID from the, the economic, and I think that's true. But just yeah, to, you can get, you know, terrible as it is to lose a job and the mental health consequences, you can't recover from death. Yeah. <laughs>
But Lucas, just going back to what you said about, you know, this is an Italian issue uh, that the Italian economy has been struggling. Do you think we've we've come forward at all in the degree to which a problem for one is seen as a problem for all? Because it seems to me as if that's something that has bedeviled the European integration project from the start, is they've talked a good game about solidarity, but ultimately, if a country is struggling, it's not seen as a collective problem. But I wonder whether in this era where we've seen what populism can do and the impact it can have on the union as a whole, whether actually, you know, Italian problems are seen more as shared problems than perhaps they were 10 years ago. Well, solidarity is not immediately forthcoming. We know that. It's not obvious why the guy living in Lapland in Finland feels he or she has solidarity with a Greek farmer in the Peloponnese. Not obvious at all. It's something that it takes a very long time to build. But having said that, look at the pandemic package. Okay, now don't you think that Italy played a very significant role having Matteo Salvini looming over the horizon, mm. if you are in, in Berlin or Paris, you think a lot about what will be the consequences of another crisis bigger than the previous one and letting the Italians without any help. What would be the consequences? And you see the difference is that... Instrumental solidarity. Yeah, okay. okay. Which but is still. The, more, the most effective. <laughs> Just, I mean, go ahead. Go on. Yeah, but the corollary of that, Lucas, is, is then is it you Italian has to, Italian politics becomes something where de facto the UCB me, mediated through the Italian president ends up with a veto over who can form the Italian government, and I think that's why we've seen so many. I mean, after all, even with the Liga Five Star Coalition, it was still led by you know, a law professor. Um, Conte is is that it makes it very difficult to have elected heads of government or elected finance ministers in in Italy. So you can provide the support, and the ECB's obviously since two thousand and fifteen in particular has been, you know, strikingly generous. You could say to Italy, including uh, over this, including bringing QE back. You know, last autumn, not this autumn, just gone the autumn two thousand nineteen, um, before the pandemic came. But in some ways. It helps Italy with its economic problem each time, but the corollary of it, is it makes its political problem worse. Because is it, the more that you do to keep Salvini away from having QE almost at his disposal, the more you make it likely that you end up in the end with a Salvini as the prime minister. I fully agree, if I may. The difference. Lucas, then Simon. Uh, Simon? No, no, Lucas. Oh, Lucas. The difference is that a few years back, it was the ECB that tried to salvage Italy, okay? And the ECB does not have the democratic legitimacy mm. to go beyond a certain point. This time, it was, at the very, it was Chancellor Merkel and President Macron who intervened. And that makes a huge difference. The fiscal package is not QE. I mean, it's political backing, it is legitimized. So I was thinking that, you know, you raised the question, Anand, about populism and post-COVID populism. Um, before COVID, if we take away Brexit, the other main existential crisis for the EU was actually Hungary and Poland. Mm -hmm. And actually how to deal with populism, with authoritarian regimes. I mean, the Hungarian regime is not a democratic regime at the moment. It's not right at the heart of Europe as part of the EU project. And, I, you know, we can talk, it's almost like the EU is accumulating really fundamental issues and has not been able to address a series of really fundamental issues. One is the whole sort of macroeconomic governance side. Another one is democracy, democratic governance, accountability, human rights, and the rest, which, which the EU has not dealt with. It kind of dodged that as much as it could. And it's, it's bottling it up, and it will come back. I'm sure it will come back um, once we're out, and we will be out of this COVID crisis. I don't think that's going to go away quickly. And I, I also really worry about, about where that's going to head and the inability of the EU, and particularly the inability of the EPP as a political party across Europe, its inability to, to come to terms with what Orban is doing and find any or have any appetite for taking on Orban and the Hungarian government. 
And I think that really undermines the legitimacy mm. of the EU in the eyes of many members of the public across Europe. Simon, if I may, this happens in the best of families. It is true to say that the Hungarian government is not really a democratic government. But I suppose one can suspect a few US states of engaging in undemocratic practices that would have been unacceptable in Europe for years. Yet the United States goes on. Fair point. This, this was meant to be provocative. <laughs> I mean, we're a union of states, we're not a federation. I mean, I think it's different, but anyway. But if nothing else, it impacts on the ability of the European Union to preach at others. Sure, sure. Uh, so just, just sticking to the politics for a sec, we've got a question from Laura Parker, which is about the sort of changing change of regime. And I suppose it's, you know, Chancellor Merkel has dominated European politics for a long time now. Uh, what would her departure mean? And particularly if you combine her departure with, you know, what's happening in Italy and with Brexit, does this sort of leave the way of EU leadership open for President Macron now? Is there, I mean, are we, are we heading towards a French-led Europe? What, what does Merkel's departure mean for the European Union, do you think? Who's going to go first? I mean, I, I'll be provocative and say not as much as people think. Uh, I mean, you know, if... What it means is we get another moderate centrist CDU politician as the Chancellor of Germany. This will be a continuity of policy. I mean, you know, continuity of German's policy towards Europe, European integration as a project, continuity towards the things within the European project that Germany and German politicians care about, and a continuity of that very sort of centrist coalition or broad consensus within Germany about Germany's place within Europe. And, and I, I think a future politician will be in the same position as Merkel was in dealing with Macron recently on, and I can imagine a, a German chancellor coming to the same decision that Merkel came to when it came to the recovery fund, for example. Um, a more, uh, a caveat would be if something else happens inside the CDU and you get a different type of CDU leadership emerging post Merkel, which is much more populist, perhaps with a small p in the German context, which wants to, to sort of stand up for German interests much more than the more liberal pro-European wing of the CDU does. Then I think we might see a very quite a different change of direction. But I don't, I, I think it's not just about the individual. I, if you remember back to when Merkel became chancellor, most people thought this was going to be a real transformation. Who is she? We're worried about a change of leadership in Germany. And Germany, there was a lot of continuity, actually. And so I think, if anything, Germany has shown a real continuity of its leadership in Europe over the last 40 or even 50 years. And I don't think changing the chancellor now really fundamentally changes that. Before I get someone else in, I have to ask, what in the world is populism with a small p? <laughs> I mean, populism with a capital P. I think it was like populist <laughs> parties. You know, Leg, uh, the, yeah, the, those sort of, you know, Le Pen. And I think of populism with the small p as a kind of sort of flag-waving nationalism within a mainstream political party, which, which, is, not, which is not quite populist. Right. Quite, you know. So I'd say Johnson would be populist with a small p, perhaps. <laughs> All right. Okay, interesting. Anyone else want to come in on Merkel and what her departure means and where the balance of power might lie? Yeah. I think that the interesting thing really isn't so much about Merkel herself from the fact that she's going um, because I agree uh, with Simon particularly given that you know like last year won the contest that doesn't su really suggest a change in domestic direction I think what's clear though really going back to the summer of 2019 um, is that there are serious questions for the Christian Democratic Party that are manifesting themselves in quite acute divisions about the geopolitical choices for Germany. And then obviously that means for the EU too. So that the Christian Democrats have become divided about Nord Stream. I think that you can really see that in the, in the, in the leadership election where the three candidates all took quite different um, positions and that they became div becoming divided about the China question as well. And I think where it's possible that there may be some difference with Merkel having gone is, is that Merkel invested an enormous amount of personal credibility really in the China 
issue, both in terms of the um, investment agreement and trying to get China to a carbon net carbon neutrality position during the course of this year. The, the investment she made in the Leipzig summit that then um, that then um, couldn't happen, and there's been a, something of a backlash in the party and also within the Greens, which is not insignificant in terms of the future coalition partners of the for the for the for the Christian Democrats on the on the China question. So I think we're going to see over the next few years more domestic political contest in Germany about Germany's geopolitical choices, and that means about Europe's geopolitical choices too. And perhaps a small difference, uh, there may be continuity in German-European policy, and there's been remarkable continuity over the years. But for some time, there will not be the German chancellor who always had the last word in European negotiations. Because whoever succeeds Merkel is not going to be Merkel for at least a considerable amount of time. And that makes a difference to European negotiation. And also remember that it's going to be a very difficult period between, let's say, mid-2021 uh, and mid-2022, because you have German elections and then you have the French presidential election. So the two biggest countries in Europe, in the European Union, will find it extremely difficult to take difficult decisions. Mm. So that can lead to a possible standstill. And then you hope you don't have a major crisis. And do you think that might get in the way? Let's say, for instance, the lockdown drags on longer than people expect or, or certainly want. Uh, and there's need for more in the way of fiscal stimulus. Do you think those electoral cycles will suddenly become a very, very real issue then? Because this is about raising money to give to other countries. And Absolutely. is that something you have in mind? Absolutely. I think both. I think the fiscal elections make it much, much more difficult for national leaders to commit to fiscal solidarity. That's for sure. But I also think elections potentially open up dangerous opportunities for politicians to take on the commission. So you can imagine if the French press are calling for, you know, Ursula von der Leyen to step down. What the, how does Macron respond to that ahead of an election? I mean, I can imagine that putting him in a very difficult situation and particularly with, you know, not feeling like, you know, he's made a commitment to Merkel or the German chancellor. There's a new German chancellor coming. I don't feel as wedded to a deal I've done. I think it's a very worrying situation on for the commission to be facing those two very difficult elections as well, given what we've talked about. Okay, I've been trying to avoid this, but being a populist at heart and seeing that people keep voting for questions on the bleeding Northern Ireland Protocol, I feel that we're going to have to pose a question on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, Vernon Bogdanov, it puts it in the most snappy way, I think, and he says, is the Northern Ireland Protocol viable? So if we can deal with this quickly, I'd like to get on to something to do with foreign relations at the end, but I'm feeling the pressure from this uh, Slido thing, but is the protocol viable? Do you want to go first, Lisa, as it's been haunting your... your yeah, sure. We're, 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 I'm not going to give a straight answer to that because the simple answer is that we don't know yet. However, one month in, we can see that there was a colossal calamity in its, um, in, in its planning, um, and it is no surprise. Um, it was agreed, let's say, in October, in principle, in October 2019, back in the world, it, um, it got voted in in the election in December. It gave the year's planning, which wasn't what we, wasn't um, the opportunity to plan how the protocol would be implemented, was not taken up. It was a side issue in negotiations. And do you remember in September, I think, or the in no, it was July or August when Boris Johnson talked about the threat of a food blockade. That was the very point when the Joint Committee should have been working out this long list of at-risk goods, which goods were at risk of going over the border into, into um, the Republic of Ireland. And they decided in the end, behind closed doors, in the most opaque process that I've ever come across as a journalist, that they were not going to do that list and that they were going to instead have this grace period for supermarkets, for chilled meats. Um, and, you know, I was in Northern Ireland last week. It isn't working. It is not a DUP issue. It is it is it is felt across the communities and it's not a sectarian issue either it's about real life so this morning about 20 minutes before we came on air i had an email 
from somebody in, in Northern Ireland, a Guardian reader, um, and said that the difficulty is that um, the normal stuff is disappearing, like you can't get parcels from John Lewis. Um, Curries are saying we don't deliver to your postcode. Those are real things. And I spoke to somebody in Belfast after the Article 16 debacle on Friday, somebody who isn't in a political party, but is senior, and I highly respect um, um, their point of view, who said that what's happened is that the EU and, and the UK, I suppose, are comfortable here as well, but all sides have created a protocol that is pressing buttons, which which are the wrong buttons to press in Northern Ireland, which go to um, the um, issues of sovereignty and about identity. And those are the issues that haunted Northern Ireland for 40 years and caused more than 3000 deaths. You do not do that. You do that at your peril. So I think what's really interesting now is that they are, you know, maybe over the, the last few days has concentrated minds. And, and, you know, I was speaking to some friends yesterday saying, I think what happened was the EU and the UK had a, you know, got pregnant, had a baby, it arrived on the due date, but they walked away. Um, and they allowed others to let the baby, you know, feed itself, um, dress itself, etc. There was no duty of care um, on the implementation. So let's see um, what, what emerges from the committee um, meeting, or the, there's a meeting between Sefcovic and Gove at five o'clock, and let's see what happens out of that. But the, we're, they're asking for a two-year grace period, or for the grace period um, exists on supermarkets and chill foods and some other things like parcels, steel quotas, etc., to be extended. But I think what we're looking at now is the actual real conversation about the working out of the protocol that should have happened two years ago. Anyone else want to come in on the critical? Just quickly, I mean, I agree. I just don't think that it's politically sustainable for all the reasons like Lisa's saying. And as you say, it's not just a Democrat unionist um, issue, but there are clearly people on that party who are under pressure from their own side, so to speak, who are going to have to fight very hard about the issue for political reasons. But in some sense, I think what's happened over the last week um, is actually going to focus minds of realising that this issue um, must be um, addressed and that it isn't going to be possible to carry on um, as things were, were set up in the protocol. I think there's a difference between, you know, so-called teething problems and deeper structural problems. Some, some of these things are teething problems that could be fixed with the, some extensions, some new agreements about how to manage some of the regulatory checks, um, different categories of goods, more transparency about how they manage that, more IT investment, more support for hauliers, and so on and so on. But there's a deeper structural issue, which is there has to be regulatory checks somewhere. You know, either there has to be regulatory checks east-west, or there has to be regulatory checks north-south. We can't, we can't, there's no, there's no way around that. And that, you know, I, I, and that is really deeply destabilizing to the Good Friday Agreement for all of the, the things that, that Lisa has outlined. It's, it's, Whichever way you do it, even if you could address these teething problems, there will still be a community in Northern Ireland that has potential political gains to be made out of, out of causing trouble on any east-west checks. And, and, I, and I really worry about where that takes us in the long run. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know what the, the answer to that is. I don't see an easy solution. And I think this is going to be a festering wound within the Brexit deal for, for years to come. Well, I think it's. I, I think we are looking at Northern Ireland being the, um, being what what should you do when you have sourdough, you know, the starter yeast or whatever it is for the breakup of the union. Um, it, I, it, I don't think it, it. You know, there are sectarian um, opportunities here. Um, uh, there is, you know, constant talk of United Ireland border poll. The DUP's, you know, launched last night of a campaign to get the protocol scrapped. Obviously, has an eye to that longer-term issue that they have to remain to be seen to be fighting the cause of unionists um, in the face of calls for, you know, a potential border poll, which is not going to happen, in my view, for a very, very, very long time. But I do think if you disrupt people's lives, I'm coming back to this real-life issue. If you disrupt people's lives and they can't go online and get a parcel from um, Amazon, or, you know, they can't get minced, minced beef, or, you know, your haulier, you know, they're facing not just teething problems, they're structural problems, there are costs attached to. Uh, the haulier I visited last week, they showed this swathe fan of 34 pages um, that needed to be um, to accompany um, a, a, a lorry load of fish that was coming from the Midlands. Um, 
And that is that is structural because the cost of that, and as that chap was saying, the people who are going to bear the cost are not the big supermarkets, the big beef manufacturers or processors. They're going to be the small artisan. The bakers aren't going to be able to pay um, f- for that. So I, I, I think... I think Northern Ireland is going to be a, a big story um, in the coming months and, and, and years. OK, I'm going to move us on because we've only got a few minutes left and I wanted to ask something about the wider world. And I suppose the obvious question here would be partly because or largely because of President Trump, we've heard a lot of talk in the European Union about strategic autonomy over the last four years. Now, with the accession to power of President Biden, will that be turned into reality or is President Biden an excuse to, re- to go back to complacency when it comes to the EU's heft in world politics? Uh, let me try first. Uh, it seems to me that uh, you have the United States, a country with an extremely polarized society, mm. as we've noticed recently and less recently. But there is an interesting cross-party consensus on the rift between China and the United States and possibly also worsening of relations with Russia. That presents Europe with an extremely difficult decision. Do you follow the United States in what may be another version of a Cold War now fought on two fronts? as opposed to just one front, namely against Russia and against China? Or do we try to steer a course in between? This is going to be extremely difficult because the pressure from the United States and from Washington is going to be very strong. So the concept of strategic autonomy is not going to go away, Biden or no Biden. Okay. Helen? Yeah, the, I agree. the only thing I would... I would add is that um, I think that I know you don't want to keep using the word Brexit, but <laughs> Brexit complicates oh, this as well. Ago you've done it. <laughs> because um, it's already clear that, that Britain has made a different choice on China. Mm. Um, and I don't think that that's going to change here. I don't think it probably can for structural reasons to do with Hong Kong. In fact, it's probably going to deepen as the Hong Kong crisis deepens. Uh, and so actually, although that there's no obviously intrinsic liking of Brexit in Washington under Biden, that actually Britain is now lined up with the US on both the Russia question more and on the, because it's less energy dependent on Russia and on the um, China question. Um, and actually the way that climate intersects with this means that if Britain was sort of more lukewarm on the climate issue then that might actually might be a way of sort of tying of bypassing the brexit question for the eu but it isn't so actually on the big questions britain's lined up with the us in a way in which the which the which the european union um isn't and that doesn't mean it's going to be easy for britain i'm not trying to suggest that um at all i'm just saying in terms of like navigating the relationship with um britain that also navigating the issue of strategic autonomy and, and what role Britain in security terms still plays in that, there is a divide. And the divide, because of the fact, as Lucas says, that we're now talking about uh, effectively a dual Cold War in some sense, if that's the right metaphor, um, that it's not the same as it previously was. It's harder than it previously was. Just say one very quick thing, and I'm conscious of time. Remember, Putin wanted Brexit and and. The reason was that he thought that with Britain out of the EU, he could it, it, doing business with the EU would be much easier. And I think, you know, I think it looks like the EU now with, this is one of the issues where actually, ironically, we didn't think about big geopolitical things. We thought about European integration on economics and things like that, but actually on the geopolitical questions, Brexit actually might lead to the EU having a more coherent policy towards China. And, and Russia than it, than it would have done with Britain at the table for precisely the reasons that Helen has outlined. Do you want to add anything, Lisa? No, I think I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I remember um, attending a conference about a year or so ago with Phil Hogan and um, the Huawei um, issue was um, to the fore at the time and he had a very different approach um, about China. And I can remember 
getting a call complaining about a story I'd written um, because obviously he didn't think there were journalists in the room. Um, but it was clear then that they had a different approach to um, that issue, um, you know, Trump aside. Um, I think I think Simon, yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, there's certainly plenty more to be said on these foreign policy issues, but I'm afraid time has beaten us. Uh, before I thank the panellists, let me just say you will get a survey if you can fill it in. And actually two things I'm quite interested in your views on, or more interested than I am in your views on the other things, I think, are one, what you think of the new system of not having opening statements, uh, which we've tried today for the first time, whether that is an improvement or not. And two, whether you think an hour is the right length, because I always end up getting a bit frustrated with these things because there's loads more to talk about and we run out of time. But on the other hand, I suppose it's best to leave your audience wanting more. Uh, but listen, without further ado, to all of you, Lucas, Helen, Simon, Lisa, thank you so much. I thought that was utterly fascinating. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface of this so we could come back and do this again. And indeed, I hope we will come back and do this again. But for the moment, thank you for taking the time. It's really nice to see you all and stay safe, stay well. And I hope we can catch up in person one day. Who knows? <laughs> thank you all. All the very best. Next Bye. time in person. Yeah, that would be great. Thank That's you all. To look forward to. <laughs> Bye. Yeah.